Yeah. Um, okay. So the thing about the arts, uh, where to start on this? Um, <laughs> the, the, yeah, it's a exactly great question, man. Good question. Welcome to the Thriving Musician Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with musician, speaker, and consultant Spencer List to hear stories of how professional musicians navigated the inevitable financial challenges that arise on the path to creative freedom and get insight from industry professionals on how to break through to the next level of your finances, career, and art. Now, here's your host, Spencer List. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Thriving Musician Podcast. Today, I have a special guest. He's a saxophonist and educator. He's internationally recognized and sought after as an outstanding performer and teacher of classical saxophone music. He has his bachelor's degree in music education from Indiana University and a master's in saxophone performance from the University of Massachusetts Amherst. And he currently is an assistant professor of saxophone at the University of Houston. He's been featured in solo and chamber music performances all over the United States and across the world, Singapore, China, Colombia, to name a few. And he's performed a lot of new music by composers such as Zach Browning, Bill Ryan, Rob Smith, and many more. And he has recordings of new music on multiple record labels. I mean, he's just done a lot of really awesome things in the in the music world. He's an educator who maintains a private studio, and I'm really looking forward to speaking with him today and sharing his knowledge. His name is Dan Gilock, and he's also a Yamaha performing artist, and he's a member of Phi Mu Alpha Symphonia. So welcome to the podcast, Dan. Thank you so much for having me. Did I say your last name right? You did. I can't okay. believe it. I even, well done. I asked that in the pre-show form, and I just didn't even look. That's a great um, idea. <laughs> but, <laughs> so thank you so much for speaking with me. I've wanted to talk to you for a while. Um, I discovered you on Instagram, I think, somehow. And I love, uh, for those of you who don't know, um, Dan has a, a page on Instagram where he, it's basically kind of like, He's like, if you want to learn how to play saxophone, go there and like watch these videos. They're very educational and intentional. Um, and we can talk about that more later. But I that's how I discovered you. And I realized quickly that you were someone that I want. I wanted to talk to. I want to befriend. I want to know. Um, so thank you awesome, for being man. here. Yeah. So my, for those for those who don't know you um, yet. Can you give us a little bit more background um, musically, personally, kind of uh, take us through, you know, just take us through your whole life real quick. Okay. Yeah, sure. Um, well, <laughs> I was born in 1982. <laughs> no, I, I'll give you the moderate version of this. Uh, sure. uh, so yeah, I am, uh, I'm a saxophonist. Uh, I am a musician. I uh, started playing music uh, with the tonette, which is a crappy version of the recorder in fourth grade. So oh, when wow. everybody learns recorder, I got to learn the tonette, which is like the easy version <laughs> of the recorder. Is it like three holes? Yeah, it's like it's it's like six. So you don't have to worry about your thumb and it's <laughs> it's hard to mess up. So that's funny. That. 
Yeah, uh, we were, I mean, my, my mom and dad are not musicians. Uh, my, my dad's an amateur musician. Uh, so I grew up with like um, folk music of like the 70s and uh, early 80s and uh, hymns from church. And so that's like my background in my ear, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, I discovered uh, jazz around eighth grade, started listening to stuff. Dad bought me a, uh, a CD player for like my birthday when I was in eighth grade. And I got like a, an album of, uh, I think Benny Carter was the first jazz record that I, I, I had with, it was like, an, like an, a thing he did later in life with Dizzy Gillespie. And I was like, oh, wow, this is really cool. I think I get it. And <laughs> I moved to John Coltrane after that. And I was like, I kind of get a little <laughs> of this. And, you know, um, but I discovered uh, classical saxophone uh, when I was uh, a junior in high school. Um, I, I hadn't taken lessons up to that point. I had been in band and was doing like uh, marching band. And um, uh, it, was, it was fun. I, re- I really enjoyed it. But what, I, what happened is uh, I think during my oh, band camp, or like my, right before my junior year, I was doing a, a, a play test, testing off some of my marching band show music. And one of my, uh, the, the guy that was doing sectionals, the saxophone teacher that was teaching the mm-hmm. saxophones, uh, was listening to me and he stopped after a little while and he said, uh, have you thought about doing music? And I said, no, because <laughs> I was a junior in high school. I wasn't thinking of anything. Um, and he said, well, you should think about it. And so I said, you know, okay. And I, I went and I thought about it. And pretty soon after I decided, well, this is really what I want to do. Cool. So um, I loved band. I loved marching band. Um, I, I liked harmony. Uh, for some reason, harmony was the element of music that really uh, drew me in initially. Um, the idea that you could put these sounds together and it would make something new and totally cool and progress from chord to chord. There was just something that was just absolutely addictive about that. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, I went to do um, a degree in music ed. I, I wanted to be a band director. And um, uh, when I was in college, I joined like a, a rock and roll band and spent more time doing that than I did practicing my instrument. <laughs> and uh, I, I had intended to be a band director. I, I really had. Uh, somewhere in my, around my junior, senior year, I, I got a little bit more serious and said, okay, well, uh, I kind of want to pursue saxophone a little bit more. Um, I have a great, I had a great teacher there, Otis Murphy. Um, he was brand new to the scene. So if anybody's familiar with classical saxophone in the America, in the United States, uh, he's, he's one of the big names. Uh, just, delightful guy, great player. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, this is really picking up for me. I, I like it. I want to look into it more and, you know, get a master's degree. I can go teach band and earn a little bit more money. So mm-hmm. might as well do it now. I'm not tied down. don't have a lot of debt. Um, might as well. So um, ended up in Massachusetts after that. And I uh, did a degree in uh, performance in classical saxophone performance uh, with a guy by the name of Lynn Clock. And Mr. Clock is uh, one of the most significant influences on my life. He's an amazing teacher and a brilliant musician. And he taught me how to listen and how to approach music and how to work really hard and have a really, really high standard not to be like, well, this is okay. I mean, he would, he would drill us. Like, um, I was learning The Days in Clow, Prelude, Cadence, and Finale, which starts on very quiet, low, be natural. On, on the alto. So it's a very difficult note if you don't play saxophone. It's very, and to play it soft is very difficult. And so I came in and he's like, all right, let's hear it. And I started playing and he stopped me in the middle of the first line. He goes, no, no, no hang on, do it again. And I said, okay, I did it again. And he goes, no, stop, stop. And he stopped me. And literally the entire lesson was on the first note. 
Yeah, yes. an entire lesson yes. on the very first note. And then next week, I was like working really hard, and I came back, and I'm like, I can do it. And we got through the first measure. So the second lesson was on the first measure, and it was like <laughs> I had to get it through my head. What he was doing is a real quality control thing. It yeah. Like, it can be this way. You know, you need to have a standard that's super duper high. Mm-hmm. So um, a lot of my teaching, I just rip him off, and I just I just steal what he said, and I give it to other people. Wonderful. Um, it's just, he, he's so, so influential to me. The best teacher I've ever sat with. So, um, so I got a lot from him. Um, and uh, while I was there, um, we did a lot of quartet. I just practicing a lot, that sort of thing. I, I got married right before my last semester. So um, my, my wife is a violinist. She is from Singapore. So she flew into town. I, I met her during a, a gig that we were both playing in upstate New York. She was going to Rice uh, in Houston. I was going to Indiana University, so we met in like the Adirondack Mountains in New York. We got to know each other there, and um, so she flew back into the States with a fiancé visa, and we got married, and that was like uh, the very end of December, right before I went back for my last semester. And so uh, in February of my last semester, so two months later, we discovered we were expecting our first child, and I was like, oh, oh, okay. Uh, Wow. All right, then I, uh, I, I guess I need to make some money. Um, and so everything sort of changed, uh, changed direction pretty hard right then. Yeah. Um, and I said, all right, so I, I gotta, I gotta find some work so I could still do band. Um, I could figure something else out. I don't know. I can't go get a doctorate cause I don't have, uh, you know, that's what you do in classical saxophone. You got to move forward. If you want to stay in classical saxophone, you got to get a doctorate mm. you gotta keep with the, you got to keep with the academy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I applied to some 40-odd band jobs, band director jobs, got nothing, got no interviews. Wow. Largely, it was because uh, I was calling people blind and just throwing my resume in. Um, yeah. I was looking at, in my hometown of Evansville, Indiana, which is southwest Indiana, pretty rural. Um, it's the town that Parks and Rec is based after. Oh, I don't know funny. if you ever watched that show, but yeah, mm-hmm. it's, they never mention Evansville, but it is Evansville. So, um, <laughs> Anyway, uh, so I looked at jobs there. Um, we thought about the possibility of coming to Houston for uh, just the private lesson scene. Uh, just everybody takes private lessons in Texas. It's just, you know, yep. that in a second. But like, uh, and then I looked at the possibility of going to New York and, and pursuing jazz. Um, but I wasn't a very strong jazz player, and that seemed like um, a really risky way of doing it you know, with the wife and the kid on the way. And my wife was, um, she was she was coming into town, but she didn't have a green card yet. So it's not like working was an option for her. So I was literally taking care of three people. At this wow. Point. Um, so um, we moved to Houston uh, and I'd never been there. I'd, I'd visited for a wedding at one point, but I'd never actually visited. Um, and I came into town and I, um, the first thing that I did I'll give you the end of that story. I ended up with 35 hours of private lessons teaching by the end of my second month there. So that's Wonderful. like 60 some odd students. And we're talking about 30 to 40 bucks an hour. Nice. So it's doable, right? I mean, yeah. it's a thing. Um, so what I did is I, uh, this is back in the ancient days of 2006. So I mailed, uh, my resume and a cover letter. I like, I made a physical, physically mailed a bunch of things to band <laughs> directors. And then I, I asked friends who were in the area, I'm like, which are the good schools? Which are the good school districts? Where do I go? And I, I basically 
followed that up a couple of weeks later with an email or a phone call saying, hey, I don't know if you got this or if you saw it, but I'm a classical saxophonist. I'm moving into town. Um, I'd love to help out your band program if you need help with lessons or master classes or whatever you need. Um, I'd love to help you out. Mm -hmm. And then I would typically get no response at all back. Mm -hmm. And then I would follow it up with more phone calls until I got a hold of somebody. And half the time they said, oh yeah, you know, come on over and we can do a, you know, a mock lesson or something or, oh yeah, we definitely need somebody. Or sometimes they'd be like, no, we got somebody. We're good. Um, to which I would typically follow up. Okay, cool. Uh, do you know anybody who does need my help? Yeah. Uh, do you know anybody who, do, who is looking for a teacher? Mm -hmm. And they would pump me to like junior highs and stuff like that. So um, long story short, uh, within a couple of months, I had a lot of work. Um, wow. It's still that way. I mean, in the DFW, as I'm sure you know, yeah. I mean, just these bands are huge, you know, all over Texas band is so huge. And I mean, these kids have like, what, 300, 400 kids in a band. And like, it's, it's, oh, just, yeah. nuts. it's just huge. It's and crazy. if you want to be in the top group, you have to take lessons. And so there's a huge opportunity for people. And uh, so at that point in my life, um, I was prioritizing teaching because it was just, you know, get food on the table, keep mm -hmm. things moving. Um, I was practicing a little bit. I mean, it's hard to practice when you're teaching, you know, seven, eight hours a day and drive oh, around. Yeah. You know, it's, it's just, it's exhausting. So um, played a little bit here and there, but not much for about two, three years. Um, incidentally, I got a lot better at the saxophone just from teaching. It wasn't, mm -hmm. I wasn't performing. I wasn't practicing a whole lot, but just, just from teaching, um, crystallizing ideas and presenting them to other people clarifies it in your own brain so well that like, it, it just, it, and also when you have to demonstrate something, it really focuses you and you've got to be like, okay, play it right. Perfectly right, <laughs> right now. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, it was, it was very, very good for me. Tiring, but I was making money and making ends meet. And, um, uh, somewhere in the middle of that, and we're, we're catching ourselves up to present pretty soon. Mm -hmm. um, uh, second or third year I was there, I was uh, teaching at a, uh, at, a, at a high school. And there was another guy who also taught next door to me in the other practice room. And so we would chat periodically. And he was an undergrad student at U of H. And he said to me at one point, he said, hey, man, I'm doing a recital and I need to fill a little time. I want to do a uh, quartet, but uh, everybody seems to be pretty busy. Would you play in a quartet for me? And I'm like, yeah, sure, let's do it. Um, what do you want me to play? And he said, oh, could you do soprano? And I was like, well, I don't have one. Uh, and I haven't played it for like two, three years. But I mean, if you could get me one, then sure. Um, so he said, yeah. And so we put this thing together. And um, I found out after the fact that uh, the professor, when she came in to hear us and give our first like coaching listen on it, we were just going to get coached a couple of times and go on. She was preparing to just shut the entire thing down. Just like, well, I, huh. I don't know who this guy is. I don't know where he's from. He's just some guy that they found around Houston. And he's playing right. so this, this is probably going to be awful. And, you know, but she was happy with how it sounded. So um, we played the concert and it was, you know, it was nice. It was fine and everything was cool. Um, the following year, I was uh, trying to um, let people know about uh, a contest that I, I had started and I still run, a, a contest called the Houston Underground Competition. And it's a, a quartet and solo contest for high school and junior high kids. Sax cool. So it's... Um, it's it's massive. We'll get to that later. But like it's 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 so much fun. It's super big. It's that is that is my number one like success, you know, wow. in life. 
<laughs> is 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 underground. But um, I was trying to let people know about it. So I emailed the professor and I said, hey, um, so I've got this thing. Uh, I'd like to tell your students about it. Could I come in and just talk to everybody for like three minutes for masterclass or whatever? I've got some posters if I could hand them out and just have people hang them up. And she said, oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Oh, also, by the way, I need to go on maternity leave. Would you like to fill in for me? And I was like... <laughs> Yes, please. So uh, I was like, yeah, sure, sure. Um, so uh, the funny thing is I never actually went in to like present underground to the students. Like never got back to me on that. But like come that next fall, I show up and um, we just touch base about stuff. And so I go in and I'm super nervous because I'm used to teaching high school kids and these college kids are doing serious rep. Um, that summer, I think I had to learn like 10 pieces of standard rep that I'd never learned before because students were going to be playing it and right i needed to know what these pieces were supposed to sound like you know yeah. so so i just i just gunned through all this music and i'm just practicing like mad and um and i get in there and the original plan was that i was supposed to be there for eight weeks and then she was going to come back and say hey thanks so much we'll see you later yeah and I was like, all right cool cool so um uh so i kept my studio my private studio i dropped a few kids but i was teaching here 23 hours a week or something like that and then i had like another i don't know 30 25 to 30 hours outside i mean it wow. was fried man i was teaching is exhausting one-on-one -on -one teaching is exhausting so um because i was planning on being short-term things so of course i wasn't going to let go of my day job you know i wasn't going to let go of my gig right but at the end of eight weeks she comes back and she's like you know what i'm not feeling 100% yet, why don't I just take like the top quartet, like the wind ensemble kids, and you can take care of uh, pretty much everybody else until the end of the semester. And then we'll, we'll, we'll just say thanks and see you at that point. And I was like, uh -huh. sure, you know, whatever you need, that's yeah. fine. So uh, we did that. And then at the end of the semester, she's like, you know, I'm, I'm still not feeling entirely. So, <laughs> so let's, uh, um, let's do this. Let's, uh, why don't you take like the bottom seven or eight kids in the studio and I'll take, you know, the lion's share of everybody. And I was like, yeah, sure, shoot, let's do it. So that was the end of the semester, like the end of the school year. And uh -huh. um, in the meanwhile, I continued doing, you know, the, the same stuff. And right. um, I, uh, you know, always with the expe expectation that I was going to like, just they were going to, you know, sort of phase me out eventually. And then at the end of the school year, she said, you know, this is actually working really well. It's taking the edge off the teaching. Why don't we just keep doing this? We'll keep going. It's an adjunct position, so we don't need to do like a national search or anything. And it's like we're I'm happy with how like you and I are working together and everything seems to be good. And I was like, Yeah, sure, let's keep going. That's awesome. Um and then that summer I I called her about a week or two before the start of the semester and I said, Um, so what do you want to do? Who do you want to take? Who do you want me to take? How do you want to how do you want to play this? And she called me back and she said, You know what? I I really don't want to teach anymore. Uh, <laughs> All yours. <laughs> and so I distinctively remember hanging up the phone. The first time she had called me and said, oh, can you do maternity leave? I think I, I, I hung up the phone and I think I just shouted or screamed. or so. I was like, ah! And I had a very young son. He was like maybe two years old or something like that. And he freaked out. He started crying because I was just <laughs> shouting. Because I was so excited and so happy. Wow. When I hung up when I hung up the phone the second time, I was so nervous. I was so stretched out because now I had a studio that was just me. I was, you know, I moved from a secondary position to a primary. And I was like, oh crap, how is this gonna play itself out? Here comes the responsibility. 
right? Right, right, absolutely, absolutely. So, um, so uh, we were here, um, and just you know, I showed up, and that was that was like a week before the semester started. I was like, oh, okay, well, uh, here we go then. And so we went in, and um, I told everybody what was going on, and we just started moving. Um, we had a quartet that that year that uh, was really diligent, worked really hard. Um, and they went on to do some of the competitions and they ended up winning, uh, the silver medal at fish off that year. So, um, that was great timing for me because, uh, I mean, I was helping them with stuff, but I mean, they had the experience of some really great teachers before I was there. I was only their teacher. I mean, I had taught them, these were upper level students. So I had taught Mm -hmm. them for a short period of time for that first semester. And then for that year and the rest of their training was all like the people that had come before me. Um, but they won this prize the first year that I was there. So sure makes me look good. Right. And at that point, the administration just said, all right, this is fine. We're just going to keep them. Wow. And um, a few years after doing that, they uh, promoted me from an, from a, um, an adjunct position to an instructional position position, which is not a tenure track position, but I have healthcare. And I mean, I'm a classical saxophone player that has dental, which is pretty freaking amazing. Um, So it's, uh, it is not um, the most secure thing in the world. Uh, A lot of people get the picture of like, they they look at it and say, Oh, wow, I want this job. It's going to be great. Everything is going to be taken care of. I'm going to be able to do I, I, I have a lot of side projects that I do to make ends meet. Uh, it's, it's not a full-time job in the sense that I can just do this and occupy my time with that. Um, right. That's the position that I'm in now. And I've been here doing this. So I've been at the university for about 10 years. I've been in this position for about seven. And that pretty much catches us up to wow. where I am right now. So you're, you're riding that wave at that school it's really cool like how that developed um so one thing i when you said a few things i want to talk about Mm. um but the first thing that comes to mind is when you said all of a sudden it's you now right it's just you yeah all the responsibilities on you i immediately thought that's what happens with money so if Mm. There are people, and I was one of these people, I grew up and I wanted whatever the thing was. And let's say I want to be financially secure. I want to have a job that pays X amount, whatever that thing is. I want to buy a house. Um, When that happens, and so let's say you get to that point and you have X, you have Mm -hmm. a certain amount of money, or maybe you get a windfall from an inheritance or from a good job or whatever it is. Yeah. That same feeling happens of, well, now I have the responsibility. What do I do with it now? Right. And so I've said this before, but I just wanted to just kind of say it out loud. I don't really have a question about it, but when you said that it's the exact same feeling. So if you're listening and you're still working towards your goals, it doesn't end there. Right. And this is a perfect example of an amazing situation for Dan. Um, you know how it ends up where it's all on him. He, he gets the thing, you know, to a degree 
and all the responsibilities on him. Well, now what? Right. So that happens with all of our goals, um, especially with money. Okay, I've got the money. Now what? It doesn't end there at all. Yeah. if, If I could add to that, I mean, part of the thing that happens is that when you start I mean, there's a growing up process with regard to this, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. a lot of times people get their first paycheck and they think, you know, woohoo, I'm going to do X or Y or Z. And Mm -hmm. if you've already got like a, like a credit mentality where you're, you're buying things on credit and pulling yourself into debt, um, you've got this mentality that money is there to be spent and you slowly develop into a sense of where I actually need to like adjust how I'm approaching this, Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, I could see how it happened. Like if, if you were, for example, to come into a big job, a big, you know, a big paycheck or, or something like that, where, I mean, if, if you're responsible, you start looking at it going, okay, uh, well, crap, what do I do with this now? What, what, what do grownups do with money? Yeah, I, I don't, nobody really, nobody really ever addresses this. It's yeah. like, you're going to learn these things. You're going to go get a job and you're going to take care of yourself. And like, we're going to focus on teaching you the things that you need to know and then you're going to figure the rest of this stuff out. Mm-hmm. But then when you start dealing with money, it's it can be a shock to your system. Like when you're responsible about it, going, oh wait, what what's what is taxes? What is uh what's what what's investing? Like right. you know that sort of stuff. Yeah, when you and for so when you were working towards you know I want to teach as a career, hmm. and you're preparing for that, right? You have a music ed degree. You're hmm. teaching students and you're getting the experience you know how to do it and then you get to that pinnacle point where you're taking over at this university you prepared for it right you learned the knowledge as much as you could you got the experience so if we and and then you know you're you're prepared really you you still have that sense of responsibility but Mm -hmm. you're most likely very prepared for that position yeah yeah now let's parallel that to the money situation if we're not preparing or having that experience with what to do with money and then we get it Mm -hmm. and then we have the responsibility, well, then it's like, uh, all right. Um, (laughs) I have absolutely no idea what to do. So it, it can be very jarring. It can be very scary. Um, and I still deal with this. So I'm stressing the importance of financial literacy, right? So, um, that's your preparedness and experience is learning about it now. So when you do reach those goals, you know what to do with it. Um, but even today, I have read so many books. I'm studying it. I'm going to classes about this stuff. I'm st- studying to be a certified financial planner. Woo-hoo! And it still happens. You know, you get the money and then you still have to make a choice, even if you are prepared. So it's yeah. very, very similar. Yeah. Um, so I just wanted to stress that. I do want to ask you about, I want to go a little bit more into the idea of teaching. And I have a friend and colleague, uh, his name's John Gower. He's a trombone player. Mm-hmm. Um, and he has a, a little blog that he, I say little, it's not little or big. It's just a, it's a good blog. Yeah. Um, and he wrote an article about, I think it's called Why Musicians shouldn't teach as their fallback like you know oh if i can't perform it's okay i'll just teach did Um, this make its way around recently this probably maybe you've read it i might have read this yeah so i want to know your thoughts on this because you mentioned you know teaching is difficult especially one-on-one and Mm -hmm. not just musically i mean you're talking about dealing with 
adolescent kids' psychology uh, <laughs> therapy to a degree, babysitting, Absolute, dealing absolutely. with parents. I mean, you're talking about so much more than the music, but then also musically, and then also the uh, the other level of methods of teaching and adapting to different styles of learning. And I mean, it's just like so much. So I'm sure you have a lot to to speak on this topic, but I, I want to get your thoughts on it because I think a lot of musicians, and I even say in my posts about if you want to generate income, there's, you know, there's many, many ways to do it. But the three top ones are performing, teaching and recording, right? And then there's plenty yeah. of others, right? So yeah, sure. everyone thinks, well, if I can play, and you know, I've taught some lessons at this academy for a little while. I can I can teach and I can do 60 hours or you know, 60 lessons, 30 hours. Mm-hmm. So I want to know your thoughts on all this because I'm sure yeah, you have sure. a lot. Yeah. Um, okay. So the thing about the arts, eh, where to start on this? Um the, <laughs> yeah, it's a exactly great question, man. Good question. Uh the thing about the arts is that when you enter the arts. Um, people do it out of the love for the craft, right? Mm-hmm. We're there because we love it, mm-hmm. largely because we don't want to do anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, one option that I, I always encourage people to remember is that, because um, I deal with a lot of high school kids, like right. lots of people that are, you know, and, and, and undergrad kids, people that are entering professional music or dealing with, should I do this? Um, you got to remember that the arts make incredible hobbies and, um, you can be very satisfied and fulfilled and you can be a true artist if you're doing it as a hobby and you have something else as a day job. Uh, Somebody doesn't stop being an artist when they stop getting paid full time for doing that thing. You know what I mean? Preach. Yeah. Pay is not a, uh, a litmus test of how much of an artist you are and, and neither is poverty either. So it's not like, well, unless I'm starving like Van Gogh, I'm not making good art and I'm true. That's not, that's, that's a false flag. Both of those Mm -hmm. are like false tells as Mm -hmm. far as your artistic integrity is concerned. So, um, I always encourage people. I'm like, listen, this life is difficult. Um, it can be worth it. If you Mm -hmm. love it to the degree that it is going to make you happy. I mean, you got to deal with weird hours and instability of work and low pay and weird respect situations from different people in society. Um, those things are going to be difficult. If love of the craft is going to make up for all of that, then do it. And normally a good tell is that you can't find yourself doing anything else. Like if mm-hmm. you couldn't find yourself being happy, you know, running some sort of day job and then um, doing all the music stuff on the side, if you couldn't be happy doing that, then enter music because you know, the, the pros have got to weigh, outweigh the cons because if the pros are not there enough, man, those, there are a lot of cons. I mean, there's a lot of difficulty. So we have to have a realistic expectation going in. Yeah. Um, so that's the first thing. Second thing is that um, you can make a living in the arts, but there is nobody waiting on the other side of a degree or uh, of, of you just presenting yourself as an artist to the marketplace and saying, oh, please come work for us. Here's, I'm going to give you a paycheck at $70,000 a year. When you become an artist, you are an entrepreneur. You are self-employed. You, you, right. you get the work that you make for yourself. Yeah. Um, so people got to realize that going into it, um, you have to 
provide for yourself. Like you've got to, there is a financial bottom line here. And so some of your craft has got to become lucrative. Not all your craft. And half of the stuff that I do that's really satisfying doesn't make me any money, like any money <laughs> at all. So, um, but some of it does. And that's why I focused. And again, for me, I'm in a u- unique position. I felt like that, that responsibility drop when I was here at the university. I have to do a good job because I'm being employed now. I got, I got students that really depend on me for their careers. I have like, you know, my administration here at the university is paying me to do a certain job, a good job. Right. So I have to be in charge of this. I got to do a good job. Earlier on, it was, okay, I got uh, a wife who is not legally allowed to work and a kid and I need to keep three people, three human beings alive. So um, finances became extremely important. I couldn't mm-hmm. go do my side projects if there needed to be money going. So in other words, there is money to be made and you can provide for yourself and you can't have a stable life. You've got to be flexible enough to look for it in weird places and you, you've got to kind of create that market for yourself. Um, so you got to think very creatively. You got to be very flexible. You have to have a you know a bunch of you know doubles. You know whether that's you know teaching, you know whether that's being able to play clarinet and saxophone, or mm-hmm. whether it's being able to paint and teach art classes for kindergartners. You know what I'm saying? There's got to be like secondary things that you do. Now entering more directly to your question, which was like about the nature of teaching. Teaching is different from playing. Um, it's it's not the same thing and it requires a separate set of skills. Yeah. Um, and it can be really exhausting. And there are some people that love playing, but don't love teaching. And for those people, uh, this sort of thing can be really hard, especially starting out when most of your income comes from teaching. Um, the, I mean, I, I really enjoy teaching, you know, unless I'm getting really exhausted and burnt out. But like, generally speaking, I like teaching. I like interacting with people. I also like playing, um, you know, so it's, for me, it's not so much of an issue because I'm, I'm relatively happy. I mean, if I had the opportunity to just simply play for a living and be as secure and stable as I, I am now, I mean, I might go for that maybe, but I, I, I'd miss teaching. I mean, I would miss interacting mm-hmm. with people. Um, for me, it's sort of part and parcel of it. Mm-hmm. Um, if, you know, at, what it is, is you, you have to lay out all of the things that are in front of you and ask yourself, what are viable options for me? If you look at teaching and say, man, I I hate this. I don't like teaching at all. Okay, so that's not a viable option. Okay, so now you're presented with a choice. Do I go do something else that's not within my field and make money for myself? Do I, you know, do I go run Jimmy John's or do I I bartend or whatever? Do I go work as an accountant Mm -hmm. and then do my art on the side? Or, and I think this is the thing that people should go to first. Okay, teaching is off. What else is within my wheelhouse that I can do mm-hmm. that will make money? What if I started doing, oh, I don't know. Um, what if I started doing, like if I'm an artist, what if I started doing like geek art, like Marvel art for commissions? I started doing like stuff like that. What if I, you know, set up a website where I did like, I don't know, happy birthday videos for somebody or something like that. You know, like mm-hmm. if I can't make my money within my field, from teaching because it's terrible. I'm doing a bad job. It's really negative. My students hate me. I hate them. I hate the situation. You know, like I said, it sort of boils down to, am I willing to deal with the crap for the love of the craft? But also, is there another option that I can find? And Mm -hmm. the unfortunate thing about that is that nobody can really tell you what those options are. You got to be really good at looking at yourself 
and your situation and figuring out what is a viable alternative. To right. It. Yeah. So I, I know a lot of people who, and you mentioned this, I think towards the beginning, um, when you were telling your story about, um, the idea that, you know, when you're teaching, let's say 35 hours a week and you were, I think you were saying, you know, I was hardly practicing because, you know, mm -hmm. I'm mm -hmm. spending all my time teaching. It's very exhausting. And I want to emphasize, and I know, I know this from experience with myself and with others who teach a lot is creatively, you know, when you're teaching, you're hearing a lot of music and huh. that doesn't, you know, you, in a lesson, you're not necessarily listening to beautiful music all the time, <laughs> right? I mean, Tell me you, about it. <laughs> so, you know, it's not necessarily like you're listening to Beethoven all day. Yeah, and then right. you're inspired and you go home and you write your original music or you practice or you focus back on your art. Yeah. Um, but your ears are just done listening yeah. to anything. Oh, man. Absolutely. You're probably talking a lot, um, or, you know, or listening a lot. I mean, there's so many things happening when you're teaching. Yeah. So I want people to consider the sacrifice and the opportunity cost that comes along with teaching when you do want to pursue your art. Um, yeah. Even if you do like it, I know people who love teaching and it still suffocates their artistic side just because of the physicality and the mentality that comes with it. Right? I, absolutely. I find myself in that circumstance a good amount myself. Um, right now I teach, I think I probably have 20 two or three hours at the university and maybe another five or six outside of that. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's a little less than 30 hours of FaceTime. So it's better than I was doing earlier. I mean, you know, some of the teaching that I was doing, you know, cer certain times, I mean, there was a lot of physical hours that I was dealing with people and you're absolutely right. I mean, the brain drain that happens when you are teaching means that creative activity, just, you don't have, you're not, you're not sharp. You, you're not doing good work you're not necessarily inspired at that point. Mm -hmm. um, in or, if you find yourself in that situation, you need to you know, find a way to clear your head and like prioritize time. And again, this involves sacrifice. So you gotta sacrifice something else. Right. By sacrificing sleep, by sacrificing you know, time watching TV, am I sacrificing mm -hmm. time with my family? I mean, am I sacrificing teaching time? Right. Um, you know, in order to do the thing that you want to do the most. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, 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 you're right. It's an opportunity cost. You're not going to be able to just turn everything off the second you go home and say, all right, back to the thing that I wanted to do. <laughs> yeah. So can you talk a little bit about when you're teaching students? Um, I want to get in, I want to talk about your side projects, but first um, I want to talk a little bit more about music education and yeah, sure. Um, when you're talking to students, of course, the focus is musicality, right? Learning their instrument and performing and everything that comes along with music. Um, do you try to inject some life lessons in term and, and more specifically career finances or insurance? I mean, just like, yeah, you know, what's your approach there? And maybe what are your recommendations? Um, for teachers that are listening. Right. Okay. So, whew, um, 
the to be a teacher, uh, especially in the nature that we're doing it, which is one-on-one, you got a student for an hour or half an hour once a week, you start to build up a really serious relationship with them. Mm-hmm. And it depends on your personality type. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, you can be really engaging and get to know the students really well. Um, you can be very, very distant. I know some really great teachers that are extremely distant, very private. And so they don't talk about personal stuff pretty much at all. Mm-hmm. Good teachers for like the the craft that they're teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, I'm... I'm I'm rather personal, so I, I, I do like to get to know my students. And if something is troubling them, I want to know and I want to be able to help them. Yeah. So um, that opens up a lot of candid conversations sometimes. Um, part of it is making sure that the student feels you know, safe sharing yeah. that with you. And right. there obviously is a line of professionalism past yeah. which you do not cross. And so there's sometimes that I'll tell a student, listen, we can't talk about this. I, right. I, can't, I can't talk about this with you. I, I can't, you know... I, I can't talk about sexuality right. with with some of my younger students. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just that's I, I, it's not appropriate. I can't go there. I wish I could. I can tell you this, and this is what I can help with. Um, but I, I, there are times that I have to like pull back and move away. Um, the uh, you know there are times that we deal with finances, and there are times when I see a student is being an idiot, and I'll be like, "Hey, you got to stop doing that. What are you buying sneakers for? You don't." Like you've you've told me for the past month that you don't have money for books or reads, and you're yep. probably not going to be able to pay for your classes next semester. Right. And those kicks are $130. Yeah. What are you thinking? You know. Yeah. And so we'll have those discussions sometimes. Um, you gotta. I think you gotta be willing to do it. You gotta look for opportunities. Um, and you gotta know your 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 people that you're talking to. Right. Some kids are open to that, and some kids are not. Yeah. You know. It just it depends on what you're comfortable with, I guess. Sure. What about career-wise? Do you talk to students about... I mean, I remember um, I, I studied with Brad Lee at University of North Texas, and uh, oh. we, had a, we had a great relationship, but he, oh, he, can, terrific, be, he can be very... Um, uh, I don't even know what to describe it. Uh, other people had trouble, but, I mean, we had a great relationship. I, I love him. Um, but, you know, he would he would just tell me, he'd say, you know, what do you... What do you want to do? You know, do you, what separates you from anybody else? And I could never answer that question, even though I knew yeah. that there was something. And now I know. I mean, it's a that's, lot of re- there's a lot of things. So, that's, you talk about that kind of a, stuff. Yeah, I mean, that's a good teacher, man, because he is grabbing the student and saying, "Hey, wake up!" Yeah, don't be because I mean, especially in school high school and college, you get these blinders on and you're just focused or you go to, you, you, you roll out of bed, you get to your theory class, you go to the practice room, you do your rehearsal, you, you, you maybe play a gig, you come home and you repeat. There's no like long-term thinking. And right. uh, particularly in jazz, I find that these guys are so close, they, they have their feet on the ground. You know, they have, they know the real world and they know when a student is being, you know, totally head in the clouds and can't, like it has no grip on reality. And so yeah. a lot of really good faithful jazz instructors that I know are, are, are downright offensive sometimes <laughs> trying to grab you because, and they're, I mean, that's like the most faithful thing that they could do to their yes. students though, right? I agree. They're grabbing them by the shoulders and shaking them and saying, hey, wake up, you got it. And, and now the student is at least thinking about this. Yeah. You know, they got more of a chance of surviving. If they know that they're going to just walk out in there and they're just going to get blindsided and just, you know, completely sucker punched by the reality of the professional world and adult life. Yeah. At least see that sucker punch coming. 
you're a thousand percent more prepared than otherwise. Yeah, definitely. So I personally, I've talked about this a little bit. You know, I loved playing music. I was, I came up in the Texas scene. It was huge here, like you said. Yeah. Um, I yeah. did not like marching band. I have stories I cannot tell <laughs> on this podcast I, I, about my experience with marching band. I, I, I full disclosure, I have uh, run full circle, uh, or rather, rather not full circle. I've got, I've got a complete one eighty on my opinion of marching band now. So, um, <laughs> I mean, I love that you love it, but for crying out loud, can we just get inside and play some real music, please? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So sidebar marching band, you know, it's, it's, it's not for everyone, but it is for some people. And, you know, I had my experience with it. I was not a fan of, we had a more militaristic style at my high school anyways. So, but I went on to college to do music because, you know, I was good at it. I I did the all region. I, I went to area, you know, really early and in my high school, whatever career. And, you know, I'm sure there was like, validation attached to that and I've, my very first interview was with Miranda George she talks about how um her validation you know spurred her whole music career she went on to get a doctorate and became a professor of music at University of Arlington and now has left uh yeah the music yeah. career stuff for personal reasons because of this she it was validating her and I'm sure some part of that was with me too but I went on you know to college to play music because it was awesome. I was good at it. Yay. Mm -hmm. And I had no idea about any of this stuff. I mean, not only musically what it's really like, but personally, financially, and you know, you hear all the starving artist crap. I mean, that's, that's another story, but you know, so I'm sitting there kind of going through the motions. And so to have someone like, um, Brad Lely just be like, wake up. You know, yeah. and I, I'm hoping that this podcast in some way, I'm not, I don't want to say, wake up, don't do this. I want to just right. say, wake up and think about it. Right, right. No, absolutely. I mean, it's just sometimes, I mean, that's what, that's what good friends do to each other. You know, yeah. Every now then you got to smack somebody and that's the best thing that they can receive. And it's not pleasant. And you're like, all right, you're going to hate me for this for a short period of time. Is that what you're like, the other people had trouble with Brad with? It was like, they, they thought they was too, he was too intense, too in their face about Probably. it? Probably. Yeah, I okay. think. Yeah. yeah. So I'm sure yeah. to some degree, they didn't want to face that reality um, to what level that was for them. It, you know, everyone's yeah. in their own world, but yeah, I'm sure that was part of it. It's never fun getting knocked out of your own comfort zone, right? Yeah. But yeah. No, it, it's, yeah, I, it's funny. Um, man, the timing of this interview is great. I, I just, um, so I teach a, uh, uh, here at the university, I teach a, what's called a saxophone pedagogy course. Now, what that is, is not the music ed class where you teach like, you know, your flute player to play saxophone. Okay. Uh-huh. It is a class specifically for saxophone performance majors. So um, I've got, well, we've, I mean, this doubles down a little bit extra for me because like I'm, these kids are leaving here with a degree in classical saxophone. That's not a thing, man. Classical saxophone isn't a thing, you know? <laughs> I mean, it is, but it's, it's, it's like, I mean, come on, you yeah. know? It's, it's not like, like I said, it, this goes doubly so. Nobody is waiting to pay you on right. the other side of this. So I, I feel it's really my duty to make sure these kids are ready for it. But this pedagogy class, it had been largely just studying where the saxophone came from, like who the big teachers were, uh, why we teach the way that we do, how we got to this point. But what I've changed it into this semester is um, 
the back half of the class is basically built around really practical stuff. So we're going to be talking about how to build a studio. We're going to talk about how to do your taxes, like wow. what a Schedule C is. We're going to talk about how to set up a DBA or an LLC, um, which I actually don't know yet how to do the LLC thing. And I need to, I really need to, but um, it's fairly simple. Yeah, I, I understand. I, I Most of this stuff is, it's just the learning yeah. curve of like figuring out like what yet, like the learning how to do it. Yeah, it's a lot harder than the actual doing it itself. But yeah, you know, so we're just going to go through basic things like that, things that they're going to deal with. And it was, I, I, I said as I was introducing it, I was like, I mean, I know everybody has doubts about is this a good idea? Should I be doing this with my life? Uh, what's going to happen once I leave here? And everybody starts like nodding and like half smirking. It's <laughs> like, yeah. So like we have to talk about real stuff because, um, you know, if you're prepared, you have a fighting chance. Right. So, so we're covering that stuff. And, and the class has always been built around what I call the saxophone question. Um, the saxophone question is sort of what we've been talking about. I, I tell somebody, uh, you, I tell somebody I play saxophone. They say, oh, you play jazz then, right? And I'm like, well, yeah, but I'm mostly a classical player. And I actually had somebody say, oh, you mean like early jazz? Like, <laughs> that's what they said. You mean like old timey swing? And I'm like... <laughs> Uh, no, no, I mean like classical music on the saxophone. And then they just start looking at you like, like, you know, like what, 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 what do you like? What does um, not compute? Yeah, exactly. And so it's like, nobody knows this thing exists. And also nobody's waiting to hand me any money. Yeah. So the saxophone question is, how do I make it survive? Um, and actually like what, I, when I said, like, we go through these old, you know, these people, what did they do to make themselves big and survive yeah. how do they move forward uh it's a pretty interesting study but like i said i've switched it over so it's much less history now and now it's more like this is how you you know the, the, you need to double let's talk about doubling let's talk about developing a double you know yeah. that sort of thing so wow you're really pulling the curtain i mean yeah i mean i mean it, it, how is it what good? it is how is it good for them to keep that curtain closed i mean yeah what sort of a teacher am I? If I the last thing i want is for a student to have this weird pie in the sky idealistic version of what the of what life is going to be and then he leaves and he he gets like knocked into the dirt and he's like well, why you know i spent four years with you why didn't you tell me any of this stuff right it's like you're almost doing a disservice by just kind of throwing them absolutely. out to the wind absolutely and and of course it gets unpleasant at times but like mm -hmm. you know it's yeah. Wow. That's yeah. really, really cool that you're doing that. Now, did you have any pushback from the school or from anyone else about doing <laughs> the class? Um, no, I actually, I'm thinking about going to the administration and saying, hey, listen, I'm, I, I want to teach a music um, entrepreneurship or a music business or a music uh, life skills. I don't know what you yeah, would call it. Yeah. Like, like, is there a home ec for yeah, home, yeah. <laughs> home ec for, 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 for music? Cause I want to teach home ec for music. This is how exactly. you for yourself. If you have no money because you're an idiot and you bought a new saxophone, this is how to get your wife back because you've been out all night and you, 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 you drank too much at, at, at the blues gig. No, yeah. I, you know, the yeah. practical stuff. I, I, the, the administration here basically said, look, this is a pretty freeform class. They need to have it for being a saxophone major, like a, a saxophone mm -hmm. performance major. So you can pretty much do whatever you want. So it's, it's pretty self-directed. So, wow. um, 
I'm yeah, but I, like I said, I, I think I'm going to go because I think that like you know, chances are people other than saxophonists want to know about this stuff too. Yeah. So, and I don't know why other schools aren't. I don't. Eastman has a job like this, has has a class like this. Okay. They've got like a um, I don't know what it's called. I think it's called music entrepreneurship jo- uh, class, and it's it's been there for like ten years. Um, wow. I think people are picking up on it right now, which yeah. oh, for crying out loud, <laughs> you know. Yeah, good, you know, but uh, holy cow, it's about time. I mean, this should be half of what we're dealing with. Right. Yeah. um, They at North Texas, where I went um, in my master's, there was a business entrepreneurship class and it was it was music business focused, Mm -hmm. um, which was great. Totally eye opening led to me really branching out beyond just performing and recording and stuff. Um, I'm going to look into that Eastman thing. And it's awesome that you're doing that as well. And I I ask you about the pushback because um, some schools, when I um, talk about giving my presentation, I have a talk that I do Mm -hmm. to raise awareness about financial literacy and music business and mindset for musicians. Mm -hmm. Um, The the general response is, it's a little bit perplexed, you know, they're perplexed a little bit like, well, can you, you know, I send a proposal, it's, it's a whole outline. I mean, it's, it's pretty apparent what the talk is about. But the response is, can you, exp- can you explain how this is going to help our students? Right. And I'm just floored. I, I, uh, I don't know what to say beyond the talk okay. is about <laughs> how to yeah. life. Here's the thing. The university is such a weird, uh, what's the word for it? They're, they're in their own little world. Mm-hmm. I mean, universities are by nature now not really connected to the real world as much as they ought. I think that certain certain schools are and certain administrators who have their heads screwed on straight are are trying to be more broad about it. I've, I've heard a lot of good stuff coming out of Stanford and business startup places and things like that. And business cool. schools largely are good about this stuff. But arts, I mean, it, we have art that's been developed not even for art's sake but for the sake of applause of other academics and now you're basically writing music painting doing sculpture whatever it is so that you can put lines on your resume and impress other people that might possibly lead to you getting a job in this comfortable environment um there's no real motivation to i mean the not to go too much on a capitalistic tangent, but I mean, the idea of a motivation, you have to do good work in order that you are rewarded right. with financial gain. Mm-hmm. That's good for the development of all sorts of things. Right, right. When you don't have, when it doesn't matter if you do good work or bad work, you're going to get paid the same. Guess what happens? <laughs> you start doing bad work. People start phoning it in. This happens. Right. I mean, this is, and everybody knows, like, they can name, you know, a half dozen professors that are just there reading off of the lecture notes that they wrote 15 years ago. Yeah. You know, and, and I'm, not, I'm not accusing anybody individually of doing this, but, like, this is an acknowledged thing. And administrators are concerned with, and they have, they have a lot of pressures that make life very difficult for them. Right. That they exactly. can't necessarily defend it. Like if they've got a provost holding over their shoulder, they can't necessarily defend your talk to a provost because it doesn't directly affect what the provost cares about. Right. Things that exist within the university circles. So if, for instance, and this is happening, 
if entrepreneurship and music entrepreneurship and financial awareness and literacy becomes more popular, then they'd be able to say, our music school has doing, been doing this program and they can right. brag to their friends about it. But until that is a valuable thing to them, they, they don't care right. because they don't care necessarily about the students being prepared for the rest of their life. Mm -hmm. That's not the purpose of the university. Right. According to them. That's what I'm saying. I, I'm yeah, pointing yeah. out what's wrong with this perspective. Right. I, I so, understand. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I, I've, I'm very fortunate in that I've got a lot of freedom and my, my administration has been very behind me on pretty much every project that I've been pushing. Um, th there's been very few things where they had to say, all right, hold up, hold up. You really can't do this or we can't help you out here. Um, they've been very, very encouraging. So I've been very wow. thankful for that. So, That's wonderful. Yeah. So tell me about, you mentioned, you know, encouraging your students when they go off into a career that, you know, we have to know, we have to have a lot of different skills and we have to really fend for ourselves and find things that work for us individually in our yes. creativity and things. So talk a little bit more about that and specifically tell us a little bit more about your side projects. I mean, I, I know you perform a lot you do some recordings. You mentioned the underground program. Mm -hmm. um, talk about those and kind of what those look like and, you know, just give us, give us your, um, you know, your ad advice as well on someone who's, you know, kind of making that transition into their career and how they yeah, should sure. maybe think about these things. Right. Okay. Uh, well, I normally tell people that, um, you, the primary thing is you got to be really good at what you do. So if you are, you know, a classical guitarist, you should be really good at classical guitar. Like that's your main thing. That's what you want to do. Mm -hmm. However, you also need to look at your, you know, your circumstances, your situation and decide what are the things that I could make a relatively easy pivot into. So um, if I'm a classical guitarist, cool. Um, well, everybody else wants to learn rock and roll. So maybe I should learn how to teach some rock and roll. Maybe I should learn how to play the blues so I could gig with blues groups. Um, uh, for my saxophone students, I say, learn how to play jazz, learn how to play the guitar, learn how to play the clarinet. I, when I got here to Houston, I was teaching saxophone, but I was also teaching clarinet lessons and guitar lessons. Wow. I taught a, um, I taught a homeschool guitar ensemble for like five years. <laughs> oh uh, man. It was great. It was great. Uh, it cool. was totally different. It's a change of pace. It's neat. Um, uh, my first gig that I got in Houston was playing clarinet in a chamber group. And the second gig that I got was playing uh, with a blues band. So it was like three or four years into living in Houston that I got a gig as a classical saxophonist. Um, and it's just, you know, you look for opportunities. You don't yeah. say this, all I'm able to do. Right. You look for other things. And then... Um, you know, you find things that you're interested in and you start to move them forward. Um, I've always thought that a good hobby is something that could turn lucrative eventually, you know, something that you could turn and, and, and grow in. Not that there aren't, you know, good hobbies that are just like, you know, flippant and fun, uh, but like mm -hmm. um, you try to identify needs. So for instance, with Houston Underground, I started it because I realized that um, the band, uh, year like the way that the band works uh throughout the year in you know 
Texas, and to a lesser degree, the rest of the country. Uh, the Most of it is dominated by marching bands. So you got a marching band show that takes up the fall, and you get ready for it by working on stuff over the summer. And then once that's finished, you basically have a Christmas concert. And then you have a little bit of time for solo and ensemble stuff. And then you have concert season. And then you got sort of a dead period at the end of the semester. And then you get ready for marching band. Um, and I realized that there wasn't a lot of chamber music, which was always the most gratifying thing to me. I love playing with small groups. Um, it's fun. It's good for you as a musician. Like you have to get much, much better when yeah. one of four voices, like you have to be accurate. You got to yeah. listen. Your intonation gets better. Your, your response gets better. I mean, all, it makes you a better musician faster yeah. than anything else will. So I said, all right, so we got a little bit of extra time. They're not doing much quartet. Um, quartet is great. It's a lot of fun. There's good music written for it. It's good yeah. for them. Why don't we have a contest? And what we'll do is we'll say, everybody shows up. You got to play anything up to 15 minutes of music and the winners are going to get cash prizes. So we said, all right, cool. And the first year I was me and two other saxophone teachers and we had uh, like six groups or something like that. Um, this is going to be our 11th year of doing it. We have 40 groups every year. We started a solo pro uh, contest as well. And that has, last year it had about 70 soloists and they have to play standard reps. So they're playing Creston Sonata first movement or Tableau fifth movement like hard rep. There's like a, you yeah. got it in order to play, you got to compete at a high level. Yeah. Um, and then uh, we're giving away like $1,500 in cash. And like, we have sponsors there that are giving away free reads and stuff like that. And we have like uh, well-known saxophone players coming in from like all over the country to judge it. And it's like, it's huge. It's just, it's big. Fantastic. And it's, it's fun and it's positive. Like it's a good environment. Kids are happy to be there. And it's, I mean, people don't necessarily, I mean, you can't all win, but everybody seems really happy at the end of the day anyway. I mean, it, I, I, I don't see people moping on their way out the door. Mm -hmm. Seems seem happy and they're excited and they hang out for a while. And it's, I mean, it's, I'm really proud of it. You know, that's, that's something that we did. It's, it started and it started with um, a need and it wasn't really making any money. Uh, and it's still not making lots and lots of money. It's not like this is paying my rent, mm -hmm. um, but it's there and it's, you know, it's helped out the art scene an awful lot. Mm -hmm. um, so that's one thing that I've done. Um, I've done a lot of like homegrown projects that I'm, I'm in the middle of publishing. Like I've got a, uh, an album of duets that I've done with a bunch of other uh, saxophone players from around Texas that we are self-producing. Uh, we've been recording it ourselves. We got a bunch of videos. One of my students is really excellent videographer. So we got a bunch of neat like YouTube stuff coming up and we're gonna be releasing it independently. Um, I've got a book of Bach chorales that um, is arranged for saxophone quartet and has like instructions in there. And it's got like, uh, certain places have like the, the chord tones written over the top of the pitches. So you can look at it and know that on this fermata, I'm going to land on a third, a major third. So I know that I'm going to have to drop that. Interesting. Start training your ears. Um, and it's got instructions for everybody. So it's like, all right, alto and tenor, you guys have uh, a part that's aligned. Everybody stop playing. Alto and tenor, play your part together. Lock it in. Okay, great. Now play it with everybody else. Barry Sachs, you've got a bunch of major thirds in this. Normally you're playing roots and fifths, so watch out for that. And it goes through its 23. But anyway, I just started talking to a publisher about that. Um, cool. So it's, it's getting close to going to print. It's, I'm pretty excited about that. Um, awesome. And then, I mean, you just look for opportunities. Um, at, at first, when you're starting out, when you're trying to make a career happen, you say yes to literally everything. Yep. Everything that you can say yes to, you say yes to it. 
So um, even if keywords, keywords yeah. in the beginning. Yeah, right. <laughs> and I, okay, and I, I I threw that in there on purpose. Yeah. I mean, there's the uh, yes or f no uh, or, <laughs> uh, principle, which uh, or no, sorry, sorry. What? No. What, how how does it go? If it's not if it's not a hell yeah, it's a no. Or if yeah. it's not a yeah, it's a it's a yeah. no. Yeah. Um, if it's not a hell yeah, it's a no is after a while you have your own momentum going. Yeah. So at that point, if you're not really excited about this, and I found myself entering this stage recently, a lot of people come up and say, hey, we could do this. It's going to be so big. It's going to be so huge. And I realized what it is, is that I'm going to be helping them do the thing that they want to do. Yeah. And that if I was not there, they could not do the thing that they wanted to yeah. do. And that makes it their project and not my project. Yeah. Now, if I'm equally excited about that, well, now it's my project too. And so I'm on board. Uh-huh. But if not, I have to tell them, listen, I'm really busy. I'm so sorry. You know, I, I can't help you out. Um, there are still certain things that I do that don't have a financial payoff because mm-hmm. I feel like it will grow into something else. Mm-hmm. Um, you, yeah, I mean, it's just part of the nature of this work. I mean, we give away a lot of material for free. Yeah. Um, you don't let people take advantage of that. You don't like play at somebody's restaurant for free exposure. That's unless you really want to, you know, uh, like if you really want to, sure, go ahead and do it. But like, you got to understand that you don't, you know, we don't let people take advantage of us, but we are also, we got to be really willing to be very generous with the material that we have, with the thing that we have to offer people because eventually they know that they want it. When they know that they want it, then you start charging for it. Right. Yeah. Wow. Lots of amazing things we've talked about. And I think that we will definitely have to do this again because I, I have all these questions I want to ask you. Um, oh, cool, yeah. But so we'll plan for that. Um, so to to wrap up for, let's say there are some music educators, some young musicians, maybe they're in college or maybe they're thinking about going to college for music mm-hmm. um, or maybe professional musicians who are kind of rethinking how they, you know, are going to navigate their career and whether they, you know, the hobby versus career thing. Um, I know that's a lot of people to be talking to at once, but what's your one piece of advice for that listener? Mm. Um, Initiative matters more than anything else. Initiative, Initiative will make up for everything. I mean, you may lack good training. You may lack good uh, inherent natural ability at what you're doing. You may lack um, the uh, background or the financial wherewithal to do what you're trying to do. You may have a thousand things that are against you, but initiative will pretty much overcome any of those. Um, With initiative, you'll be able to see what's wrong with yourself, like blind spots or weaknesses, and initiative will take care of those things. Uh, you have to be willing to put yourself out there, make yourself uncomfortable, look for things to do, drum up work for yourself. Nobody can really teach you that. Um, it, it is something that really needs to be, you know, internal. You know, you have, yeah. to, you have to be motivated and you have to take initiative. That's, that's what I would say. Awesome. When you say that, I think of the it's not the Brene Brown quote, but she uses it. Um, I can't remember. If it, I think it's maybe a Roosevelt quote. Um, something about the man in the arena uh, basically is the one who deserves all the credit. You know, the people who are the critics from the cheap seats 
don't deserve any credit. It's the person in the arena doing the thing, blood, yeah. sweat, and tears. Yep. And yep. it sounds like you're saying, if you take the initiative and step into that arena, you know, good things will happen. You may fail, but you'll learn from that failure. But if you don't take that initiative, well, then you, you've got a guarantee that nothing will happen. Yeah, right. right. I mean, it's better better to have a failure on your record because now you have an experience and you're more valuable to everybody around you. Definitely. You know, and it's, it's, I should also say this, not everything you do is going to work, you know, Mm -hmm. not everything is going to succeed, but somebody who their character is like, can be described as somebody with a lot of initiative, somebody who is constantly moving and looking and working and moving forward, that person will succeed. I mean, they do, they just do. I mean, not everything you put your hand to is going to like come to fruition. Right. But if, if you have just, if you're, way of being is to start things and to move forward on things and to put in, you know, a lot of things that we do are front heavy, like the, all the yeah. work comes out the front and then all the good stuff, the payoffs, they come much, much, much later if they do. Right. If you're the sort of person who does that sort of thing, it, it, it seems in, in my experience, that's going to pay off. It, it's it inevitable. Just, yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, so where can our listeners either learn more about you or get in touch with you? Sure. Um, well, uh, Houston Underground's website is houstonsax.com, as in houstonsaxophone.com. I, my Instagram page is uh, it's Instagram slash Geelock, which is my last name, but spelled with four E's instead of one. <laughs> and uh, I was tired of people mispronouncing it. but. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, you can find my email on uh, the University of Houston's music webpage. Just search my name. You can you can get in touch with me pretty easily. And if you have any questions at all, please do so. Um, I answer everything. I, I answer everything that, that that gets sent my way. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for spending your time talking with me. I'm sure um, those listening got a lot from it. I I definitely did. It was a wonderful conversation and i can't wait to do it again well thanks man yeah thank you so much for having me on this is uh this has been a lot of fun so i hope this interview was helpful to you in some way and inspirational and i hope you all have a great day keep thriving want even more ideas tools and resources on how to break through to the next level of financial and creative freedom Check out the leading financial blog for musicians at spencerlist.com, where Spencer covers the latest trends and financial strategies. And by signing up for the Thriving Musician newsletter, you can earn exclusive member content and discounts. Get it all at www.spencerlist.com. If you would like to nominate a thriving musician for an interview on the podcast, request Spencer to speak at your school or event, or want to submit questions or comments, please send an email to spencer at spencerlist.com and keep thriving.